Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hello, everyone. We are back again with Love Extremist Radio. I am psyched to be in the home of Julie Pilot. Julie is a music and tech executive, host of the Idea Fountain podcast, and community organizer. She is best known for her encyclopedic knowledge of all types of music and passion for breaking new artists. She is a lifetime director at A Place Called Home in South Central LA and a governor for the Los Angeles chapter of the Grammy Board. You can hear more about Julie's work in music, creativity, and community on her podcast, The Idea Fountain, Life-Changing Conversations. I'm a big fan of The Idea Fountain. Thank you for being you and inviting me into your home. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I think that it's a really fun time, right, where we can have conversations like this, and there's not the gatekeepers to connecting. And I don't know how you feel about Love Extremist Radio, but the Idea Fountain has opened more doors and connected me with people all over the world in ways I would have never experienced. And it's also instigated deeper conversations with my friends. That's a huge one. Yesterday, I was talking to my buddy Serge, who will be on the podcast probably the week before you, and Serge and I don't talk about love, you know? We don't talk right. about like these deep conversations around like how he's a yoga instructor and think, t- concepts of appropriation and like what's what's right to be sharing and what feels a little weird and like vulnerable conversations of depth and I find that time and time again with some of my closest friends who, you know, we just don't get into it. That's why I started the Idea Fountain, because um, a place called Home where I volunteer, one of the people that helped start it is a nun named Sister Pat. And she's like a gangster nun. Mm. And I've known her for almost 20 years. And as I peeled the onion, I learned all these fascinating stories. Like, she was in the 80s a nun in Mozambique during their civil war. And then she was mother superior and in charge of all the nuns in 17 countries living in Rome and working with the Vatican. What? And then at some point she said, give me something harder. And they sent her to South Central in the 90s where at times Sister Pat would come between gang members and the police and say, you'll have to arrest me. And sometime they did. But as I knew this nun, she seemed like a little sweet old nun Mm -hmm. that was hanging around the center. And every single time I would find out something deeper about her and try to ask her and say, like, Sister Pat, you were Mother Superior? Like, you were down with the Pope? She'd say, oh, well, really, it was a lot of us. And um, (laughs) we all worked together. But you're doing so great at Apple. You know what I mean? I'm like, 
come on. But if you interview somebody, there's kind of a license to go deeper. And so that's why I started it, because I wanted to interview Sister Pat. Well, and I love that you are in the interviewee chair today, largely because you and Sister Pat both have this amazing humility, and yet your stories are so rich, and you've engaged with so many icons of our generation. And so I think that story and like kind of my next question is like, who are you behind you, right? Like, you, you know, you, you mentioned the Grammys and being in music and tech mm-hmm. and being an executive, but you've had so many stories coming from where you come from, growing up in the time you grew up. Can you give us a little, like, perspective on, like, what you've seen over the years in terms of music and culture? Sure. I think it's really interesting when you say, who are you? Because I think nobody is just one thing. For sure. Right? For sure. And uh, I started out growing up in Seattle being obsessed with music when I was 12 years old. Like, babysitting the entire neighborhood just so I could get a subscription to Billboard magazine and look at the charts. Like, yeah. How nerdy is that? Wow. And then... So not only music, but music, like... Like stats, like who was mm-hmm. doing well. I thought I wanted to be a music writer first. I really thought I wanted to be a writer for Billboard. Mm. And then um, when I was in junior high, a DJ came to my radio career, or I mean my junior high career day. Okay. And uh, I was asking him so many questions. He asked me if I wanted to start helping out at the station. Nice. And in the 90s, there weren't giant big corporate HR rules. Every radio station was mom and pop. And so somehow they let a 14-year-old just hang out all summer long. And I used to answer the request lines. And this is 90s in Seattle. Yeah. At a hip-hop station is where I started. But then uh, the next summer I took a class. There was a college radio station by my house that if you took the class, you could be on the radio. This is while I was still in high school. And I got on the air. So all growing up, I was um, working at a hip-hop station during the peak of the grunge movement. So I did both. And, I mean, I'm so privileged to get to see a lot of music history and have a lot of experiences. And I still love music with all my heart. And I do a lot of different things. I'm really involved in community Uh, The company I work at now, uh, confidentiality is a really big thing. So I don't publicly talk about my work often. And some people think that because of that and because I'm not taking pictures with artists and putting them on Instagram all the time, that I don't focus on music as much. But that's not true. Mm. I um, Actually, I have a friend who is opening a new restaurant in uh, the Valley, and it's going to be like an old music supper club. And it's next to a recording studio. Uh, Manny Mariquin, who's one of the most brilliant engineers and music mixers, like he's mixed all of Kanye's stuff, Uh, Bruno Mars, he's opening this restaurant next to the studio. So not only can he have like amazingly talented jazz bands performing while you eat this five-star Michelin dinner. But if somebody's working on a record, they can sneak over and try it out. And he asked me to make a playlist for his restaurant. Oh, my God. I went down the rabbit hole and um, had the time of my life. Because I don't necessarily do that every single day anymore, make playlists. But there is a fever and a passion and a just absolute love for music that I don't think I'll ever step away from. 
So do you still feel like 90s hip hop is a really elemental part of your identity today? Or would you say you've kind of like, where are you at right now? If you were to think. I always have really appreciated new music discovery and people that are artists in every sense of the word. So I'm really lucky to have, you know, started working in music in that time in the nineties and, whether it be all the Seattle bands, we were saying it's raining in L.A. today. Right. And I threw on my Seattle playlist and it felt like home. And mm. all the music sounded amazing. Mm. Uh, I'll always be nostalgic for that. But I get more excited even still about discovering a new artist or seeing somebody really in their true essence and being vulnerable. You can tell when somebody is an artist in every sense of the word and like really leaning into their artistry and not just trying to make a hit record or put on a facade and be a pop star. So I really naturally gravitate towards art and music. And um, I think I really love the underdog Mm. and uh, seeing people step into their power. So as much as, sure, I love music and a 90s hip-hop playlist as much as the next girl, what I'm listening to now might be a combination, really, of both. Yeah. Was there an artist that you can think of that you saw before they were known in a mainstream way that really like just resonated pure art to you? Yeah, tons. Uh, the first person that comes to mind is M.I.A., Right. Because uh, I think the first time I heard Galang, I actually saw the music video, too. And there was like all the graffiti and the dance and the fashion and also the activism. Right. She had a lot to say coming from Sri Lanka and stuff. So she always has been really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Lots. Yeah, I remember M.I.A. coming into the mix when she was dating Diplo. Mm -hmm. um, And Diplo was like a hometown hero because I was telling you before I went to college in Philly. Right. And that was the time when Diplo was really building his career out of Philly. And everyone from New York and Baltimore and everywhere else was like coming to Philly for these parties that he was throwing at the Ukrainian social club. I forget that he spent time in Philly because I feel like he may have been born in Florida or is that wrong? Is it Philly? I don't know his full bio, but like I know he was deep in Philly for a bit before he was legendary. Like he came out to LA, but like, yeah, he was, he was doing amazing parties in Philly. And what was cool about those parties was I think they were called the Holotronics parties and they were yeah, at this Ukrainian social club. They'd obviously rented it out. There were these old Ukrainian women serving us Ukrainian beer. Wow. And, and it was the most diverse party I, you could go to in Philly at the time. Everyone from every neighborhood came out. And even people were taking the bus from New York. And it's like, usually it's the other way around. Usually yeah. like, you're in Philly, you might be going to like a bigger jam happening in New York or you know somewhere else. But this like part of Philly culture was so rich and so deep. And the crew was really pushing it and... It had some momentum. It was cool. It's really fascinating to think about. Like, I could probably go to an MIA show any Mm -hmm. day of the week and have the time of my life because it is so pure and the dancing and the just energy is Mm -hmm. so intense. And it's really interesting to look at the evolution of Diplo, right? Mm -hmm. As he's had bigger hits and more success, I don't know. I mean... I love him, and there's a lot of great music that he makes, but it just doesn't resonate the same for me as it did in those days. Right. 
Well, I think that he evolved from being this kind of like ethnomusicologist, right? Like going to Brazil and bringing back this baile funk and all this interesting music where like now it's kind of like, okay, like what working with Skrillex and is like a different context, you know? It's yeah. Like he's shifted into a different Or Sia, way. right? Yeah, Who's sure. one of the biggest pop writers of all time. Right. And yeah. again, it goes back to nobody's just one thing. Totally. And I think he probably still has stories to tell too. For days. So... It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah, it will be. Absolutely. So I, it's funny, I have this question that I, that I wanted to think about with you, which is really oriented around kind of the power of art and media to move people and to be a tool for ultimately activism or spreading a specific message. What's your perspective on that and, and where have you seen that thrive? I think in a lot of ways, it's really, I've been thinking about a lot, uh, I've been thinking about creativity a lot lately. And I think for me, I had a few phases of creativity. I think when I was really young, um, I don't know why, but my creativity was kind of shut down at times. Like, Mm -hmm. I think my parents, um, because they wanted me to do well, always had me more of a rule follower. Mm-hmm. Like, you're coloring outside the lines. If I wrote a creative story, it was, there's four misspelled words on this paper, you right. know? And mm-hmm. so I think that I tapped into other people's creativity first and connected with that. And I think I was really creative behind the scenes, mm-hmm. like figuring out how I could work at a radio station super young or things like that. And then I think in my 20s, I started being creative myself for the first time. I read The Artist Way. Mm, and nice. um, you, know, you have to, in that book, go on an artist date with yourself and just do something creative. And so I was being creative, but I was kind of being creative in the closet, right? I didn't show it to people. I just mm. was going through the process and experiencing it myself. And it's only really been probably in the last five years that I've been expressing myself Mm. creatively and being okay to say, I made this. Mm. Give somebody a gift that I made. Like before I used to be embarrassed. Like, oh, it looks like a third grade arts and crafts project. Mm -hmm. But when you give somebody something you made, it's just like money can't buy that. Mm. It's like the best gifts are handmade, right? Totally, totally. And um, I think that when you're being creative, you're showing who you truly are. And I think whether that's your connection to culture or it's your connection to spirit or it's the risk of being vulnerable, sharing that is really powerful. And I mean, that's why I always have really admired everything that you do. We don't get to spend a lot of time together, but even um, when I was first getting to know you and everything you were doing with fashion and like designing Mm. your own gear, again, I'm such a rule follower. My brain first went to, I don't know how to do this the right way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but experimenting and trying, it all matters, and I think it's really fun. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think, like, in the greater context of the story of where you come from, really, like, again, this came up yesterday. My friend Serge left Boston, where we grew up together, and moved to Seattle oh. to work on a farm and an organic farm. But he also was in Seattle in the 90s when the big protests were taking place. Yeah, the um, WTO riots. Exactly. And... 
there was this association, especially in media, that those riots were kind of connected to grunge culture. Right? Oh, that's so wrong. I actually never even really heard that. Really? Yeah. I always felt like, oh, like the Seattle like grunge like movement was like uprising into <sighs> like that. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because um, I uh, got to um, know somebody from uh, Ferguson. Okay. Uh, wow. By St. Louis, and I was asking him what it was like when there were the riots there. Yeah. yeah. And it was really parallel. He said um, to what happened in Seattle. He said. You know, the media made it look like we were destroying our city, but mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. came from all over just to cause ruckus. And I remember this, he, it's this artist I know named Danny McGinnis. He's a painter. Mm-hmm. And he said, we would never burn down our little Caesars. $5 pizza? Why would we get rid of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's counterintuitive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I lived downtown Seattle during the WTO riots, and it was really intense, but there were people from all over the world that came just to destroy things. And it was it was really hard. And look, as somebody who grew up in the middle of the grunge movement and was at every show and the community was so important because every concert was 60% people in other bands, right? Right, right? And bands that I love from growing up in Seattle, you know, nobody else has ever heard of. But mm-hmm. they mean 10 times more to me than the superstars that got Grammys, right? Right. I don't know anybody in my peer circle that was down at the WTO riots, wow. rioting, right? Wow. It was it was a lot of ruckus coming from out of town. So it's funny. I've never even really heard that. Well, it's, it's yeah, I mean, like the associations of culture going straight to violence, right? Like it's kind of like the parallel that people draw between video games and gun violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an argument that's made so often and yet there isn't a lot of data that like backs it up as much as like kind of people just being like, Oh, kids on video games. That must be what's getting them to take a gun into their school. And, and, and there is like interesting, I think perhaps misuse of media to tell stories or draw parallels that don't exist. I think there's so much misuse of media. Like, have you noticed this week, everything in the news is unprecedented, the biggest storm ever. Right. And, there's so much fear mm. and drama because that drives clicks. Mm. And yeah, it's Thanksgiving week and it might snow or it might rain, but is it really an unprecedented storm? I don't know. Right. You know, but I remember that was 2001. It was a really hard year in Seattle. It was funny. Uh, you'll appreciate this. Uh, that was the year I realized I was a really good DJ, but a horrible broadcaster huh. because I used to be on the air every single day as a DJ and I could talk about music all day all night and connect with an audience but when there's a huge historic event and you're in the middle of a crisis and you need to connect with an audience and like really set the tone I was horrible at it. And um, that year... You quite good at that. Well, I, no, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it because I'll tell you, I was on the air when we had a 6.7 earthquake in Seattle. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really intense. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that happened. Um, but uh, it was funny. I was in between two songs and the earthquake lasted 45 seconds and I was under the console 
eye to eye with one of my coworkers. And I'll never forget, like for the first 20 seconds, they were like, are we safe? Are we safe? Are we safe? And all I could think was we're in a brand new building. We have to be safe. It has to be earthquake proof because it was really violent. And then the next 20 seconds, they kept saying, is it over? Is it over? Is it over? And this is the strangest thing in the entire world. Um, but like, why would I make this up? It was back before all the music was on a computer and Uh we were still at the radio station playing CDs. So we would have to load up the CDs and mid earthquake, the two songs I was in between were destiny's child, jumpin' jumpin' and Nelly ride with me (laughs) and mid earthquake from under the console over my shoulder. I like started the next song. No dead air. (laughs) But it was That's really incredible. scary because in that moment, all cell service was down. Mm. And it was a very scary earthquake. And I didn't know if my parents' house that was built in the 1960s was still standing, totally, right? And you totally. couldn't get people and you didn't have information. And I was still in the air. Right. And then I was on the air during the WTO riots. And then I was on the air during 9 11. Whoa. And uh, it was. After it was the next year that I ended up moving to L.A. and uh, I started focusing more on like being the music director. And I still did some on-air work and interviewing, but it wasn't my main driving force because it was really hard. Right. That unexpected news that shows up and you're like, you know. I think part of it comes from my head is always thinking 10 steps ahead. And Mm. in moments like that, you just need to be really present. And it was hard. Totally. Thank you for being present right now. My pleasure. It's a very comfortable place to be present. In. Yeah, right. We're in your living room. So, the 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 big question that I that I'm investigating with this podcast and really trying to explore, and from a place of critical thought, is what does love mean? How do we define love? And I'd love to hear from you with all your your, your years in the music industry, but also just your perspective in general. What is love? I um, have thought a lot this year about what I stand for and what means the most to me. And I've never quite put it in the words of what is love. But through the mentoring and community work I've done, uh, specifically through an organization called Youth Mentoring, there's a Zulu phrase that they use, and it's sawobona. And that means I see you. Mm. And uh, the mentoring program is a gift-centered approach about recognizing and seeing kids or people's gifts. If you think about young people today, they're often watched and very rarely seen. A lot of the youth that we work with um, have adults in their their circle, but they're all authority figures, teachers in overcrowded schools, parents working multiple jobs, or the police. And they don't know any adults that could just show up and say, how are you? Mm. Or what do you like to do? How is school today? And they're actually seeing them for who they are. And it's really powerful. And then there has been kind of a domino effect um, in my realization of how powerful it is to see people's gifts, how powerful it is to share your gifts. Like we were talking about art and the Mm -hmm. essence and being vulnerable, sharing stories. And then also the big takeaway I've had in the last few years is how powerful it is to ask for help. 
Wow. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't want to ask for help. Uh, they're too proud. And it's one thing to see someone's gift, but if you ask for help, you're giving them the opportunity to use their gifts, right? Mm -hmm. And we all know how good it feels to help somebody else. Wouldn't you want somebody else to be able to feel good too? Mm -hmm. um, I had a, uh, this is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. So really, long story short, I had a year where uh, the worst year of my life, I, in an emergency situation, became a foster parent to two kids overnight. Whoa. A 15-year-old and her one-year-old baby. Wow. And somebody said to me the other day, could you have made it any harder? A 15-year-old and a one-year-old? And I was like, yeah, we're in the middle of an attempted murder trial. It was the worst year of my life. Oh, my gosh. And it was the year that I realized I couldn't do things for myself. And I had hit rock bottom, and I had to ask for help. And I found out that people not only wanted to help, they loved it. And it gave them purpose. Mm -hmm. In one situation... One of my friend's parents had just moved here from New York, and they heard about what was happening with the kids. And they said, could we take them to the zoo on the weekend or something? And I said, sure, people I've never seen before in my life, take them. And, I mean, it was my friend's parents. I knew they'd be fine. Yeah. Um, and they did. Well, they, my mentee, Vicky, who was my foster kid, she's great now if you fast forward to that story. And she's phenomenal. She's a dental hygienist. She's a really good mom. She lives on her own. It all mm. worked out. Cool. But last year, my friend whose parents moved here from out of town had her own emergency. Her mom had a stroke. Oh, and uh, my friend is an only child, and her mom had kind of always taken care of her dad. And so her dad was a mess, mm. and uh, she was having to make a lot of the major medical decisions. So I went to the hospital to visit my friend and just give her some support. Yeah. And she walked out from the room and cried and gave me an update on her mom. And then we went into the hospital room, and her mom was out of it. You know, mm. severely medicated. She just had a stroke. Yeah. And um, my friend said, Mom, do you remember Julie? And there was nothing. Yeah. And uh, she said, that's okay. I bet a lot of the times Julie was around, there were a lot of people there, you know, like birthday parties and stuff like that. And then randomly she said, or do you remember that time Julie had two foster kids and you took that 15-year-old and her kid to the zoo and her mom lit up? Wow. She remembered. And that was one of the most insane things ever to me, that me being vulnerable enough and being willing to accept help right. a decade ago was something that stuck with this woman and brought her joy while she was in the hospital in one of her darkest moments. Mm. So um, I think that, I guess, to bring it full circle, love is not only seeing people's gifts. I think it's using your gifts. Mm -hmm. And I think it's being willing to ask for help. It's so, that's such a beautiful way of explaining it that I haven't heard before. And I've interviewed like 50 people so far on this. So I love this definition. I also think it's interesting, the circularness of it, right? Like it's seeing someone and seeing their gifts and asking them 
to get, offer their gifts perhaps yeah. to you, which is a vulnerable act, but also recognizing your gifts and maybe offering them or just being willing to give when the time calls for it yeah. and, 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 and step in. And that's cir- circular, right? It's kind of this karmatic, right? Like what, what goes around comes around thing. And there's also an interesting conversation happening right now in our culture around the conver- like the topic of labor and what it means to be the person doing quote unquote labor. And a lot of folks associate labor with childbirth, right? You know, that's considered giving labor. But there's also this just general idea of what is your work to do, right? What, what, is, what is your responsibility? And so often right now, especially in some of the facilitation work I've been doing, which I started to talk to you about, I'm noticing that there's a little bit of a concern around asking folks to give their gifts mm. or f- from a place of um, privilege, right? And, and, and if you're in a position of power, right, and, and saying, hey, like, I see you, I see you have this amazing ability to do X, Y, and Z, um, and you may happen to be in a different position power-wise than I am. Um, how do you see those dynamics playing out or not in your life in terms of the power or perhaps privilege that might show up in, ter- in terms of asking for help? I'm so curious to see if you even see this parallel because to me the answer is really obvious. I'm completely obsessed with the concept of time banking. And we have a mutual friend, Carla, has a company, Ying, and I am an OG time banker. I was time banking, you know, a decade ago with the Silver Lake Time Bank before Carla started Ying. And the premises of time banking is everybody has value and an hour of my time is worth an hour of your time. And you might say, how could a lawyer that charges $1,200 an hour, how could their time be the same as the valet drivers? Right. Well, each hour is a sliver of somebody's destiny. So they're mm-hmm. completely equal. And one of the really great things about Ying, it goes back to that nobody's just one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Absolutely. On Ying, if somebody wants music biz advice or help with social media, I can do that. Mm -hmm. But I also really love teaching people how to do flower arranging Mm -hmm. or letting people come over and go through my essential oil collection and make up little sample packs and talk Mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Or... I love... (laughs) When I just... It was so funny. I I was just... um, talking about this. I did the youth mentoring girls retreat mm-hmm. where we go to Big Bear for four days and um, uh, we take some of the girls that are the toughest cases and they do really powerful programming. Mm. A lot of people think that I'm putting on my angel wings and like being so selfless and giving up my time mm-hmm. to go do this. Uh, I was living my best life. <laughs> There's this picture I have from it and you know we were in a cabin and it was on the last night And here, I'm 42 years old, and I'm hanging out with a bunch of teenagers, Mm -hmm. listening to the most ratchet trap music, level 10, eating junk food, laughing harder than I've laughed. And I really, for the last 20 years, have loved henna. Like, Mm -hmm. I love the ritual of henna. I love getting henna. 
I practice doing henna and oh. I'll get little tubes and I'll practice on paper towels because if you practice on a person, you know, it stains your skin and I wasn't confident in my creativity. For the first day of my life, I was able to fulfill my dream of being a henna artist. I had a line of girls around the cabin lined up for me to put like little simple henna flowers on it. And like that time was worth a million dollars, right? And it's like, again, that healed me and it gave me so much joy and it gave me so much relief. It just, and I was hanging out with kids who have nothing and it just all matters so much. So how do you balance like the dynamics of working and living in like a highly hierarchical, some would say, you know, patriarchal, structure of you know the the music industry at large right and and the kind of corporate structures that exist there and being an executive in that industry with the breakdown of all of that when really an hour is an hour and our time and seeing each other is ultimately loving right and like how do those two kind of like identities interact i think that It's a lot easier than you might think just because this is a weird answer, but I feel like I am just who I am, right? right. And I also have the... not code switching. No, I have the privilege of I've been doing this for so long that I have been at the absolute peak in the music industry and seen the biggest superstars in the world who aren't always happy. Right. For sure. Or are the most scared and the most fragile or the most wounded. And so I don't gravitate to I have to have more of that. Right. Mm -hmm. It was really in the last year I realized how in parallel the mentoring work I've done has been with music discovery and empowering artists. Mm. Right. Um, And I think that I also when you lean into who you are and what you like to do and you start discovering things. I know that I love writing letters Mm -hmm. and I love stationery. And I know I would rather make out 100 Christmas cards than binge watch Netflix. Mm -hmm. That's just who I am. That's what I have fun doing. I have a puzzle outside. I've been living my best 80-year-old life, right? (laughs) Um, Trying to put down together this 2,000-piece puzzle since July, And um, I also am not afraid to ask for help. Like, I hit up one of my friends on Friday and said, what are you doing? Will you come help me on this puzzle? And what a great conversation as you're sitting there puzzling. I think I'm always just really enjoying leaning into those kind of things rather than the things that, I don't know, are disposable Mm. or clutter up your attention or clutter up your time and... I'm lucky to have those experiences and that bandwidth. I don't know. Right. I, it just it just doesn't seem hard. Yeah, and it seems like really like the, the value of experience is so great in your life mm-hmm. and being able to connect with others through experience and kind of not focus on the externalities or like the, the power dynamics necessarily and ultimately just be like, here's a task. Let's yeah. connect on that. Let's do that together. Somebody said something really powerful to me recently. Um, Speaking of experiences I love, there's this place called Wolf Connection, which is about an hour outside of L.A. And You interviewed the leader, right? I interviewed Mm Teo, and he said, 
rituals extend time or expand time. You can expand time through rituals. And you think about it, and rituals do create memories that last forever, right? Think about the ritual like it's the holiday season, like if you get an advent calendar Mm. and every morning you're opening a new door, Mm. how much more in tune you are with that season than whatever the heck you did in March, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what are the rituals you're creating with your friends or in your own life um, to really treasure and appreciate the moments? I think that's all really loving too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that also reminds me of the conversation I just had with Serge around like the rituals of teaching a specific yoga lineage, right? And really honoring that lineage and how that can create a container that is respectful and not um, appropriative, right? And I think I think there's something really beautiful about tradition and ritual. And, and it's what is it for you? It doesn't mm-hmm. need to be um, necessarily an act of service or changing the world. Totally. Like one of my favorite people. I have this friend named Corey Notes. We go see the trashiest, scary movies together. And it's so funny because (laughs) we're both so jumpy. <laughs> that like we'll go in and we'll always have a hoodie on because we'll pull it down and cover our eyes, and we always get a big bucket of popcorn and put M and M's in there, <laughs> and we're both like searching through salty and sweet. Yeah, we have this tradition, and it's so fun. And like we'll go to the movie, and the movie will start, and the whole scary movie will like the the score will come in, and you know you'll know something, and we'll get the giggles because we. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. And again, like I was making out Christmas cards, went to make one out to Corey and all these, I just started laughing nice. because it's a really beautiful thing for our friendship, you mm-hmm. know, and it wasn't us volunteering on Skid Row. Right. Like, yeah, you can do that too, but what do you appreciate about your friends? The other reason, like I've had friends say to me, oh, I don't watch scary movies because I don't want that energy around me. And The reason we started going to scary movies together was because we were really stressed out at work when we Mm. were originally launching Beats. We worked together. Mm. And there's something about going to a scary movie. You can't think or stress about anything else when somebody could be lurking around the corner. You're fully present. (laughs) Yeah, your attention's all there, for sure. And so it really goes to, what is it for you? Mm. So do you have examples of when you've been challenged in this definition of love or when you've maybe asked for help and it hasn't come or areas where like you've seen maybe people that don't have that perspective on life and 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 it's been hard to 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 grapple with I really think like this critical view towards love is really important and 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 needs to be discussed you know yeah I mean look there's people that have disappointed me Right. Or don't necessarily have the same values, but it goes back to that. Nobody is just one thing. Right. right. You know, people are at different places and there's different lessons at different times in their lives. Like, um, I really have thought about it a lot in the last few years with cancel culture. Right. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's difficult. Like, um, You know, and as a woman, it's really impacted me because of the Me Too movement and the way the culture of the music industry has changed over time. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are brilliant and smart and some of the greatest people, music people I know, 
who haven't treated people well and get canceled. And um, do I think they deserve it? Maybe. But do they deserve to be imprisoned and never work or fulfill their destiny again and day in their life? Not necessarily. So I've tried to... This has been really, 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 really hard, and it took soul-searching. I didn't just flip the light switch. I had to have conversations with friends about it. There's a philosopher I know. Like We had an idea fountain conversation about it. I try to approach people from the human level, mm-hmm. and there's some people who have gone through that that I've had converse, honest conversations about. And, you know... Um, One, we fought a lot, and then we had a breakthrough because they were in victim mode. And Mm. I was like, look, I could tell you five times right now you've disappointed me. This isn't about you being the victim. And I know this has been a really hard year for you, but it's also been a hard year for me reflecting on all the injustice there's been in the music business, and I need you to know this. And now we're totally fine. And do you feel like, there was learning that took place there? Like. Totally. It was it was brutal. And right. it started out not going well. And it was, you had to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And guess what? I cried. Yeah, uh, but sure. it came to that. Yeah. And uh, we ended up having that breakthrough. And you just, you just don't know. I think it's really easy to get into your head of this person thinks this or this person is a narcissist or this person has this agenda, but you just don't know. And um, it's funny, I when in this specific situation where I confronted the person, I thought it was going to be a lot easier mm-hmm. than it was. Mm-hmm. And anyways, I was having a hard time articulating and connecting and making them here. And last year, I actually uh, was asked to give a testimony about my experiences as a woman in music um, when the Grammy was invest the Grammys were investigating Mm -hmm. um, everything that had happened and what was going on in the music business, and I had never talked about it. So it was funny because I was having breakfast down the street, sitting outside on the sidewalk at this little vegan cafe down the street and we were fighting about this. And then finally I made him read my entire testimony and listen to me. And there were so many bits of that that I didn't expect would trigger the light bulb going off over their head. Right. But they did and then they got it. And there ended up being healing. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think that I guess when there is disappointment, it's figuring out how to be human and how to be honest. And I think that if we would have had that conversation and not had the breakthrough, I think I would have been okay with drawing some boundaries and not having that person in my life anymore. Right. How do you relate when it's in the, just in the context of an artist who you don't personally know, but whose work you really love? Do you continue to enjoy their work? despite the fact that they may have had some missteps in their life? I mean, obviously everyone missteps in their life. Um, yeah, it's a tricky question. I think that I think that it's different in every case. Yeah. Like, it's funny. I even, um, like, laugh at myself sometimes. I think in parallel to the energy of a scary movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I grew up loving hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And there's so much hip hop that still has misogynistic lyrics or 
things that aren't directly connected to the way I live my life. But I think because hip hop is very empowered and very aspirational and there's people telling their story authentically from the street, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be my story, but I can appreciate the spirit in the music Mm -hmm. and figuring it out. And um, I think you just have to figure out what's right for you at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. And that changes always. And also, there's something about seeing the humanity of someone else and recognizing, yeah, yeah, we are never one thing. And so to judge someone on one thing is kind of not being honest about their reality as being a complex individual. And I think you get more and more information. Like, there was a long time where, you know... um, I was still listening to R. Kelly's music before the documentary came out because I didn't realize the severity of the situation. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was real and what was news or rumors. And if I had to put my money on it, like maybe guilty, but I didn't know he was a predator going after 12-year-olds. Like that's pretty big difference than like... I went and I just didn't know. And Mm -hmm. then after I saw that documentary... It just didn't feel good anymore, right? And it's something I choose not to do. Um, do you think you know? it's our responsibility to do that research when there's a question or just to kind of be do more due diligence up front before maybe like someone is outed? I don't know. I think you have to do your own personal soul searching, right? Mm. It's like there's like 60,000 songs coming out a day. Totally. It's not up to me to be the moral judge of every artist. Right. right? Um, uh, I don't know the answer. Like as far as, um, for work, I've often thought it was more up to the audience. Right. Mm, And, um, I think that it just goes down to the individual of what you want to listen to. Like, look, um, you talk about people that I saw or was around before they were super famous. Like, in my heart, I still think of Chris Brown when he was, like, a 15-year-old little kid hanging out backstage at the Jingle Ball with his new puppy Mm. and was the best dancer in the world. Mm. And I still am blown away that everything happened that did in his life. And even after he had created monstrous acts and like gone down a darker path. He showed up and like supported work I've done at a place called home Mm. and then got into a fight at the charity event. (laughs) And so it's this roller coaster. But now, you know, this year, Chris Brown and Drake, no guidance is like one of my favorite songs of the year. And I think you just have to find your own answers in that. I I really struggle with the term cancel, largely because I don't think anyone is ultimately canceled unless they are incarcerated for life or killed. I think even if you're incarcerated for life, you have purpose. Um, Fair enough, Because uh, I had a real privilege to... um, Knowing this man named Tony, who did mentoring work with me, Mm -hmm. and... um, He ended up passing away, and he was one of the most powerful people I ever met. And when he passed away, I found out that he had been a heroin addict for 18 years. He had been incarcerated for 16 years. And by the time I met him, he'd already been sober for 10. And he changed my life. 
And that was the first time I was like, wait a minute. If that guy was in there, who else is in there? Totally. That's such an excellent point. Thank you for saying that. That our our prison system has sometimes this like no resolution. You can't change, right? Like you're here forever. What you've done is so abominable. And ultimately, we all have the power to evolve and learn and grow. And not being given that chance is really tragic. I can't even fathom what it's like to be inside prison. But if you go back to that thought of everybody has value and an hour of my time is worth an hour of your time, I think there has to be a lot of meaningful connections on even how people in prison relate to each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it all matters. Yeah, there's. I mean, certainly there's a lot of solidarity and and and, and camaraderie and connection that takes place and love, love. I mean, I had the most amazing conversation with my friend Richie Reseda, who um, was formerly incarcerated, and he spoke about how love existed in his jail cell with this older man who he was bunking with, and he was putting up Christmas ornaments around his bed while he was sleeping. And Richie was, you know, it was his first months in in prison and he wasn't used to this guy being around his bed. So he woke up and he's got really mad at his bunkmate for being around his bed and messing with his stuff. And yet there was these beautiful lights and his intention was really to like spruce up the cell and make it feel a little more homey. And ultimately he recognized that in time, but he had this hard edge. Right. And I always think about that kind of folks who have that kind of hard edge, almost resistance Mm -hmm. to acts of love or react to love from a place of trauma or anger. Have you ever confronted that or found, found kind of like people who are just so um, hard edged that they, they they have a hard time embracing loving acts or or being confronted with love? Sure. Plenty of times Um, in so many different scenarios, right? It could be in the music business and you genuinely loving somebody or wanting to help and somebody thinking this might mean you want something from them or in mentoring, right? Like the kids I've worked with who've had some of the hardest lives having a wall up, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or people that want attention and if they're not getting good attention, they'll act out Mm -hmm. to have negative attention. I think you see that on social media, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, yeah. Yeah. How do you break that down? I don't know if you can, but I think that you just have to continue to be as loving as you can be and also loving to yourself. Where, mm. again, if it ends up being harmful or too toxic, having like the right boundaries. Like Not you mentioned the Oval Office, and I'm such a believer in community and getting involved, but. Guess what? I can't watch CNN for eight hours for play by play on what's happening on the impeachment because mm-hmm. I don't have confidence, even if there is an impeachment, that anything's going to change. Right. But if there's an opportunity to sit with my council member through the Grammys with District Advocacy Day, I'll go take that because right. I feel like I should know what's happening in my community. But I don't know. You just have to figure out what's right for you. You bring up a beautiful point about kind of your sphere of influence and recognizing like how far your arms can stretch in terms of actually like making impact right. and being able to contribute. 
And when we look at things like CNN, it's it's out of arm's reach. It might feel like it's in our living room, but ultimately it's not, right? Right. And so, yeah, how do you how do you find out? And do you ever push that boundary? Do you ever feel like, oh, I'm going to stretch. I'm going to reach out to someone who maybe I haven't really spoken to or connected to, but I know that I have the privilege or the respect to be able to maybe make a connection and make a change through that. I think overwhelmingly what I think of is when I get really overwhelmed by things happening nationally or things that are out of my control, like somebody being sick, I always just try to make a difference on the local level. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think I, I, because I believe that, um, everybody matters. I also don't think of the world as hierarchical and I don't get as intimidated. Mm -hmm. And if there was an opportunity to reach out to somebody because I thought I could make an impact, I think I would, but, uh, I don't know. Politics are funky. Politics are funky. And also recognizing where our sweet spot is, right? Like what is our zone of genius? I mean, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite kids of all time from mentoring who I think could be president. She's so powerful. If she was born here Mm -hmm. last year, um, was facing deportation. Mm -hmm. And that was a situation where I did reach out to every single person I possibly could. Do you know, let's see how we can figure this out. And guess what? We never figured it out. It was hard. And um, there were a lot of really powerful people that, you know, A for effort, said talk to this person or that person. And we never were able to untangle it. Uh, She's got a hard life. Like, she had uh, her AB1540 so she could live here and work. It was somebody who was brought here as a very young child. And now she's lost it. Mm. And... um, Because she had a situation where she was near a fight and everybody got arrested and she wasn't read her rights and she was detained and she went to court and um, her public defender said, oh, you'll totally get off. Like they did all this wrong. You weren't doing anything. We actually have the security camera footage or I don't know the body cams Mm -hmm. from the police and they did all this stuff wrong. And then they found out. She was undocumented. And they said, well, you can't even go against the police. Or you'll be immediately deported. And it's just so tragic. And we're never able to figure it out. So, you know, she has a very different life now. And I don't know how our life is going to end up, but it is difficult. Yeah. Yeah, that's so challenging when you really put out all the stops to try to support someone and it doesn't pan out as you hope. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that and and so inspired by by that story and and what you were doing. And um, thank you for for putting in that work. Well, thanks for listening or having the conversation because maybe we didn't figure it out for her, but maybe we can for somebody else. Or, you know, maybe at some point there'll be some opportunity, but don't have the answer yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's and the answers are changing every it feels like every week. But yeah, so we're coming to an end. This has been a, such a beautiful conversation. I'd love to um, first just make sure we kind of get into like, do you have any daily practices that you do or things that just kind of like connect you back to your heart and to being present? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, I um, 
I always hate, I feel like this sounds cliche, but I am a meditator. Cool. I love that. Um, I also, um, I always try to move in the morning to nice. get some sort of energy flowing before the day starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a really big believer in telling people that you care about, that you love them. And I think that um, writing or even texting matters. Mm. Um, And it's so funny. I really love sending people mail. Mm. I just, I like writing. I'm super girly. I have tons of stationery. It looks like I write with calligraphy, big loopy letters. And it's so funny how many people get a letter and then will like post it on Instagram because Mm. it's so rare. Yeah. But I really love doing stuff like that. That's rad. Thank you. And I've been the recipient of some of that love, and it feels really good. And I'm grateful for our friendship and just the fact that you are so expressive and and um, generous with love. Well, I really appreciate you too. And I think that when I think of you, I think of quality time mm. because we cheap, don't get cheap. to see each other every single day. Or, um, but when we do spend time, I always feel like I walk away a better person or with a new insight or Mm. just a little bit stronger. Thank you. So thank you. Yeah, we're doing this. Wait, you asked me, you texted me a question. There's a couple more. Well, there's, I'm such a music nerd. I want to say the answer. Oh, we're doing that. Okay. Don't worry. That's like every episode at the end. Okay, got it. The outro. Okay. Um, So (laughs) second to last question, how do we find you? What's the best way for folks to get Uh, you? Well, all my social media is my name, at Julie Pilot, but it's P-I-L-A-T-T. Um, and then, uh, you can also find at the idea fountain on Instagram or the idea co. The podcast is up on all platforms. Definitely and- check it out. Yeah. A lot of the conversations that you've referenced are talked about and, and part of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So the idea fountain is awesome. Sorry to cut it's- you off and other places to, no, that's, that's the main stuff. That's a perfect start. Cool. And we'll put links below. And, um, so yeah, to take us out. What's your favorite love song? What you got? Lauren Hill to Zion. Woo! Great one. Yeah. Excellent. Have you ever listened to the podcast? Um, I forget. What, it's not deconstructed, but it's like all about... Oh, about songs? Songs. Yeah. I, I, I'm familiar. Did they do one on that? They did the whole album. Oh, the whole album. Yeah. Miss Education on Lauren Hill is such an important album. One of the most. And the way that they speak on her and like what she was going through at the time and just really dig into every single line of every song is absolutely incredible. I think it's called Dissected mm. or something like that or Dissect. Um, but anyway, great. great Even one the little out. vignettes. Like at the, I was listening to it today. Uh, to Zion, at the very end um, of the song are the little kids in the classroom talking about love. Mm-hmm. So how in parallel, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that whole album was about how she was kind of missing from that class on love. Yeah. Right? And it's like, you know, the miseducation. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Love Extremist Radio with Julie Pilot. Please... Step on the internet and post a little comment if you like this episode. Share it with your friends. And we will see you next week. Have a great one. Thanks for hanging out. Woo! One day, I'm going to understand. Zion.
tell what his idea of love is. Because now all the time we hear young black men talking about love. Uh, about your personal definition. Don't tell me what Webster thinks. Huh? Do everything for that person. Okay, everything like what? Explain. Let him talk. Come on. If I ask him to talk about a fancy car, he'd be right on point. But we want to talk about love. You can do it. What do you think? You said you love somebody. You should know why you love them, right? The way they act. Uh huh. The way they carry themselves. Stuff like that. Okay. They with their boys, hang with their boys, whatever. And they just stand out. It's like sometimes. I thought that was a beautiful point. Anybody else want to deal with that? And sometimes, like, when they, when they try to act funny in front of their boys and they get around and they say they love you, they can't love you. Because love, love, love wouldn't do that. You want to love them? Love is not funny. <laughs>